we're on episode number four when it comes to teaching about Jesus being God in the flesh. We've already established and laid the groundwork um, for what it means that Jesus is God in the flesh. God being a clear, um, I guess, since God reveals his name, we've already talked about that as the Lord, I am that I am, the self-existent, eternally existent one. Um, God is more of a title, a position that the Lord holds as the only true and living God and creator and judge and the one who sustains all things. So um, what we're talking about today is we've already distinguished between all these different things, the angel of God from God, yet the presence of God being God himself. We've talked about the word of God being God himself, yet distinct from God. We've talked about how Jesus is clearly communicated. 30 reasons, we've already gone over 30 different reasons why the scriptures teach, not Christian church history, not church tradition, not church fathers, what the scriptures teach explicitly from the word of God about Jesus being God in the flesh. Um, We've already gone over 30 reasons. 31, okay, so today we're gonna look at 30 more. (laughs) 30 more. Guys, I don't know how much more clear it can be. And I don't say that arrogantly. I say that for people who are like just opposed to the truth. And it's frustrating, man. People that don't want to know the word of God as it is. Like they have this boxed idea of what God should be. And whatever scriptures they read that don't fit that, they morph the interpretation to fit their you know, assumptions and, and preconceived notions about God. In other words, they're trying to make the scriptures fit their idea of God instead of conforming their idea of God to scripture. So um, let's just get right to it, guys. 30 reasons, um, 30 more today. So we'll have a total of 61 reasons, plus Jesus in Isaiah, episode one, plus the angel of God, the presence of God, the word of God, the name of God in the Old Testament, episode two. So we have a lot of reasons to believe that Jesus is indeed God in the flesh. Are you with me? Okay, so Hebrews chapter three, we'll get to reason number one. I'm just going to read it, and then I'll explain what, why this is a reason that Jesus is God in the flesh. Uh, Hebrews chapter 3, the whole book of Hebrews essentially is saying, don't go back to the old covenant way of relating to God. Don't go back to Judaism apart from Christ. He's the fulfillment. He's the culmination. He's the substance. He's, the, he's everything that we've been waiting for. He's the totality of it. Um, so don't go back. Jesus is better, okay? And so when we get to chapter 3, verse 3, it says, Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory. I'm just going to highlight this. Jesus has, as the beloved eternal son, the the eternal word emanating from the father, that Jesus has more glory right here than Moses. I'm going to highlight Moses in blue because that just seems like the appropriate color for Moses. Good old Mo gets blue. As much more glory, okay, as the builder. Now Jesus is referred to as the builder, or at least the glory he has in comparison with Moses is compared to the glory the builder has compared to the house itself, okay? So the builder of a house here has a degree of glory that, has, that is far more than the house itself, okay? Moses being a part of the house or being a servant in the house, every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Let's just put that on the table right there. Jesus being the eternal word emanating from the Father, per the scriptures, the divine Son revealed, God in the flesh, but I'm trying to convince you of that, so I digress. It says everything, the builder of all things is God. Do you see it? So, now look at verse 5. Now Moses was faithful in God's 
house. This is Moses, okay? Guess what Moses is? He's a servant in the house of God. And he's being compared to Jesus who has more glory, as so much more glory as you would see the builder has in the house itself. What's more impressive, the house that's built or the person who actually built that, the mind that conceived that, the hands that made that come to you know, reality. So he's considered in God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, okay? As a son. This is why Jesus has just far more glory because he's different. He's on a different level, man. And so we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and hope. So what I want you to see here is that Jesus is being uh, labeled as the builder of God's house. Not just the rightful heir, not just the rightful inheritor of the estate, uh, the one who's faithful of it or over it as the rightful heir, but he's actually the builder of it. That's why his glory compared to Moses is compared to or likened to the glory that a builder has compared to the house that's built. We are the house of God, the family, the household of, of God on, built on the apostles and prophets, only made possible because of Jesus. Okay, so not only is Jesus essentially the foundation of the house, he's the reason for the house, he's the owner of the house, and he's actually the builder of the house. And yet, right here, the builder of all things is God. So who's really the builder of the house? Is it God or is it the Son? You're supposed to see, again, We've seen this categorically in every episode we've gone over. These two categories of one who is God, yet the one who is God, yet distinct from God. They're these insane categories that make our minds just blow up. But this is the point, is that Jesus is here to be, um, you're supposed to see him as the builder of God's house, which God is the builder of all things. You're supposed to see both. Um, that Jesus is essentially the builder of the house. Moses is not, the prophets are not, the apostles are not. They might be playing a role in, 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 in helping and assisting and preparing, right? But, but Jesus actually brings substance to the work. He's the foundation of it all. And he's the builder of the house. But isn't God? You're supposed to see both. Okay, so there's number one for today. Jesus is the builder of the house. Out in a house, you'd get around that. Well, God uh, essentially allowing for Jesus to be a part of the process. The whole point of Hebrews is to say Jesus is so much better uh, I don't know why we'd minimize the whole heartbeat of Hebrews. It's exalting the Son to his rightful place as the one who is divine, um, alongside the Father yet distinct from him. That's where we get the language, the terminology of uh, what people are going to call the Trinitarian doctrine or the Trinity. Now, God, I don't think, is, has uh, restrictively revealed himself in only three um, ways, Father, Son, Spirit. I believe... That's not to be a restrictive label or go, you know what, God is only these three. I think those are the primary three that we see in scripture. Um, but a conversation for another day. Reason number two, speaking of Moses, um, if you go to Moses on Mount Sinai, and I, we're not necessarily going to go to the scripture. We, you could go there if you want. But who does Moses meet on Mount Sinai to receive the, the commandments for the people? Who, is, who sustains him for 40 days and 40 nights on the mountain? Anyone have a, any guess? Any guess? Who does Moses meet on Mount Sinai? It's a pretty straightforward question. Uh, you should probably know who he met with. <laughs> who, did you, who did Moses meet with? He met with the God of Israel. That's right, he met with God. 
Now, second question. There's another instance where a, a certain prophet meets God on a mountain as well. Can you think of someone else who met God on a mountain? A prophet in the Old Testament, I'll give you a hint, 1 Kings-ish, 1 Kings, Elijah, that's right, Elijah. So Moses represents the law, the Torah, Elijah represents the prophets. So Moses actually meets with God on Mount Sinai. Elijah, separately, in another point of human, in, in human history, he actually meets with God, and you could say Abraham too, um, the, the father, but I, I wouldn't necessarily say that was a, a meeting the same way Elijah and Moses are going to meet with God. Abraham was there to sacrifice Isaac. It doesn't, it doesn't end up happening. The angel of the Lord, God actually reaches out and goes, hey, stop. Um, so in, in that sense, you could say, yeah, Moses being the father of the faith, you can bring Moses, uh, or uh, Abraham being the father, patriarch of the faith, so you could bring him in. But I'm specifically thinking of Moses and Elijah, who in the, in the Hebrew minds represent their whole Israelite history and their whole you know, nation's heritage. Law and prophets were the substance of it, Moses and Elijah. And if you think about it, they each m met with God in their own story, in their own time, in their own way. You know? And so uh, think about how Moses um, meets with God on Mount Sinai when he's a shepherd. Before he actually goes and rescues Israel, he's meeting, he's shepherding the sheep of Jethro. And uh, Moses ends up seeing a fiery bush and it's, it's radiant, it's shining, it's burning. Um, and there seems to be a figure called the angel of, of, of the Lord, the presence of God there. And it ends up being God speaking to Moses on the mount. That same radiant, fiery, shining presence is seen on Mount Sinai when Moses goes up to receive the law. Um, and what you're gonna see is Elijah ends up going toward the end of his career when he's discouraged, right after God rains down fire from heaven on Mount Carmel. Elijah ends up being terrified of Jezebel, runs away, thinks he's the only righteous, you know, uh, man of God left, and God has to kind of humble him and go, look, buddy, you're not the only one, come on. <laughs> and then Moses, or Elijah, sorry, Elijah ends up meeting um, with God in a cave, and then he's brought out to the, to the overlook, which ends up being on a mountain. And there Elijah um, encounters God, not in the fire, not in the earthquake, and not in the, um, well, the, the tornado, the windstorm. Those were the three things that showed up, but it was actually in, in the, the still small voice, the whisper, that the word of the Lord came to Elijah on the mount. So Moses and Elijah both have their, their personal, unique meetings on a mountain with the God of Israel. What you're going to see in uh, Matthew chapter 17 is a reversal of that, okay? A reversal of that. Now, people speculate what's happening here. Did Moses and Elijah come back to life? Was this just like a phantom? Was this a, did they time travel? You can speculate all you want. The point is that God can make it happen. So after six days, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, takes the boys on a high mountain, and he was transfigured before them, okay? Okay. Now, often the presence of God is symbolized by fire, by some kind of radiant, you know, shining presence, um, like the fire on Mount Sinai, the fire um, on Mount Carmel, the fire in, in the cave when Elijah's out there, the fire in, at the day, on the day of Pentecost, the fire of God's judgment throughout the Old Testament. Fire often symbolizes the presence of God, not always, right? But it's often linked to God coming 
Um, and so what you're about to see is there's a transfiguration happening. Jesus' face shone like the sun. In other words, there's a radiant brightness about him. His clothes became white as light. He's shining real hard. He's real bright. He's burning the retinas of the apostles in a good way. They're being like, whoa, we've never seen anything like this. And I lost my eyesight, but it's worth it. They didn't actually go blind. I'm exaggerating. But behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah. Okay, so notice who appears to Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, and they're talking with him. Peter says, G Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's so good that we're here. This is like my, my kids when I take them places that they don't want to leave. Man, this is a wonderful place. Can we just stay here forever? Nope, we can't, buddy. We have places to be. Peter, it, it's so good we're here. If you wish, I'll make three tents. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Peter's saying, let's just stay up here, man. He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And eventually, they're going to lift their eyes and see no one except who? Jesus. Who's left when it's all said and done? Who do the law and the prophets terminate on or culminate in or find their fulfillment in? Jesus. And so who's left? Jesus. Who fulfills the law and the prophets? Jesus. God is making a statement about his son on the Mount of Transfiguration. It's interesting to me that Jesus meets Moses and Elijah, the representatives of the law and the prophets, but instead of Moses and Elijah meeting with God on the mountain, now you have this reverse image of who's Jesus meeting with Moses and Elijah. And I think what you're supposed to see is um, they're actually meeting with God on the mountain, but now it's the visible presence of God and not the invisible presence. What's up, Brian? Good to see you. So that's the whole point here is when you get to the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses and Elijah showing up to Jesus is not just, hey, look, he's better. He's the law and the prophets, you know, totally in, in, embodied, right? He's the sum of the, of the law and the prophets. You're supposed to see Moses and Elijah back in their time were meeting with the very person we're seeing on the Mount of Transfiguration, the visible presence of God himself. They're meeting with the God of Israel, but in a way where Peter, James, and John can quantify and see with their own eyes. So instead of Moses being the one who, um, you know, willingly suggests to, because when you go to the Mount Sinai narrative, Moses goes, God goes, hey, people are freaking out, having a giant orgy, dedicating themselves to the gods of Egypt. They've made a god out of, out of gold. You need to go down there and deal with it. And then punishment, is Moses, Moses is told by God, God goes, Moses, I got to punish these fools now. <laughs> And Moses goes, hey, like essentially he, he offers up his own life and goes, hey, maybe I can. And God goes, no, sorry, you're not, you can't sacrificially lay down your life for the people. But what we see Jesus doing is what Moses could not. Moses volunteered, hey, let me essentially take, uh, you know, because God goes, I'll start over with you. And he goes, oh, don't do that. Let, let me take their place, essentially. And God goes, uh, you're not a... Good enough sacrifice, you can't pay for sin, uh, but Jesus is going to. So uh, essentially what I want you to see is that Moses and Elijah are meeting with God on the mountain again, but now it's the visible presence of God himself meeting with Moses and Elijah. That's the point. In other words, Jesus is so much more than Moses, than Elijah. He's the sum total of the law and the prophets because you're supposed to see him 
as being the one that they met on the mountain in the Old Testament. Whether it's Elijah's mountain, Mount Carmel, even Abraham, you know, meeting God on the Mount, uh, Mount Moriah, or Moses going to Mount Sinai. Often people meet with God on the mountain. So I just want you to see that Moses and Elijah are meeting God on the mountain, but this time it's the sun. It's the visible presence of God himself, which we saw in the Old Testament was the angel of God. And, and technically, Stephen in Acts chapter 7 will tell us that um, it was the angel of God who was there on Mount Sinai with Moses. And you're going, no, it was God. You're supposed to see the visible presence of God alongside the invisible presence of God doing the will of the total will of God. Moses and Elijah meeting now with the one they couldn't see visibly. Um, so I think it's really cool to, to see it that way. So that's reason number two. Uh, Jesus is slotted there where God rightly belongs on the mount where Moses and Elijah meet God and said it's Christ, the visible presence. Uh, number three, reason number three that Jesus is indeed God in the flesh is because Jesus is the one actually taking captive uh, the enemy. If you go to Psalm chapter 68, let's go there real quick. Psalm chapter 68, verse 18. This is what, this is, this is talk, talking about the God of Israel. To be very clear, uh, the Old Testament, you know, psalmist is, yes, whether he knows it or not, he's, he's speaking to what's going to happen in the future with Christ, but, it, but it's being said of God. So watch, if you, the context here is how uh, freaking awesome God is. When the Almighty scatters kings there, let snow fall on Zalmon. There's your name for your next kid. O mountain of God, mountain of Bashan. There's another good name for your next kid. O many peaked mountain, mountain of Bashan. Why do you look with hatred, O many peaked mountain, at the mount that God desired for his abode? Speaking to Jerusalem. Yes, where the Lord will dwell forever. The chariots of God are twice 10,000. Thousands upon thousands. Watch. The Lord is among them. Sinai is now in the sanctuary. Now watch. Who's he been talking about? He's been talking about the Lord God. Who's among the people of Israel? Who has chariots that number thousands upon thousands? The Lord God Almighty. Okay? Now he goes, you ascended on high. You. You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. This psalm, is, this psalm is attributed to the God of Israel. Do you see it? It's, it's talking about the God of Israel. He goes, blessed be the Lord who daily bears us up. God is our salvation. So he's talking about God here. You ascended on high. Essentially, you, you brought victory to your people. You conquered the enemy, right? Um, even among the rebellious, like there's going to be a, this praise and worship that is given to God so that he would dwell even among the people who used to be rebellious, but they change hearts. Psalm 68, 18 is talking about the God of Israel. Now, this verse, again, has the Lord leading a host of captives in victory and conquest. Look at how Paul adapts this correctly because he's expanding upon it in Ephesians 4. Okay, he goes, grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Okay, so there was grace given, and this, this is a gift of Christ Jesus, the anointed Messiah, the Mashiach. This is Jesus giving grace. In what form? Well, you're going to see in verse 11 
the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. Those are gifts of his grace for the church. Now look at verse 8. Therefore it says... Now he's about to quote Psalm 68, 18 to reinforce what? That Jesus gave grace as a gift to each one of us who are part of the church. Now watch. When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives. He gave gifts to men. Psalm 68, 18 is talking about the Lord God of Israel. So you got to take your pick. Maybe you don't, though. Maybe you and I are forcing you know, that idea onto the text where you got to pick, is it God or is it Jesus? Paul is blurring the line between the two on purpose. Essentially, in Psalm 68, he's saying, yeah, that's Jesus, ultimately, bringing the ultimate victory, bringing the ultimate conquest, triumphing over the ultimate enemies. In saying he ascended, what does it mean that he also descended into the lower region? So just so you're like, well, he's not talking about Jesus. He literally gives commentary on what he means. In saying that he ascended, right here, he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended first into the earth? Referring not just to the incarnation, but the death of Jesus, right? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And if you go to Ephesians you know, 1 and 2, it talks about Jesus filling the church. He's the, the church is the fullness of Christ. He fills us with his spirit. So look. The person descending, here is Christ. Not just at the incarnation, taking on humanity, but into the grave. And then ascending far above all the heavens as the first resurrected human that represents us as our mediator and a high priest. That's Jesus. Psalm 68, verse 18, is speaking of Jesus. And Paul is not confused. So when you read that text, the Lord God is doing it. It's actually talking about Jesus' victory. Him giving gifts, him ascending, him conquering, him taking captive the enemy in order to give gifts of his grace. So Jesus is the one taking captives and ascending. Reason number four, if you go to 1 John 4, you're going to see that God is love. Can we all agree That right here, God is love. Is there anyone else besides God that this statement is true of? Can this statement be made about anything or anyone else in existence? That someone else or something else is the totality of love, the substance of love, the definition of love, the source of love, the embodiment of love. Can anyone else claim that besides God? I think you and I both know the answer is no. There's only one who is totally and perfectly uh, love personified and embodied. The definition of love himself. Anyone who doesn't love doesn't know God. Why? Because God is love. Okay. In the same letter, John makes this statement in chapter 3. Watch. By this, we know love. Oh, okay. Love as a concept? Love as a philosophical idea? Well... We know love that he laid down his life for us. You might be going, well, he's talking about we know the example of love. He doesn't say that. He says we know love. And then he, he gives this personal pronoun, he, to the word and concept love. We know love. 
And he doesn't go on and list an example and go, here's an example of love. He says, we know love. He's a person. He laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So yes, I'll give it to you. Like we can say this is the perfect example of love is Jesus laying down his life, even for his enemies. Absolutely. But love here is communicated as a person who is doing perfect love for others. And then you go down to chapter four and verse eight. And it says, by this, look at anyone who doesn't love doesn't know God. In other words, since God is love, you can know love himself. He's already told you who love is in 1 John 3, 16. He, being Jesus, the one who laid down his life for us, is love. So it's like, is God love or is Jesus love? Love laid down his life for us, Jesus. And yet God is the only exclusive being who, can, who this can be said about, that he is love. No one else can claim that. And yet John is saying that Jesus is. Jesus is love. What do you do with that? What do you do with that? I think, again, I, I'm really hoping that you start to see the, 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 the overlap in the scriptures between uh, God and the Son. That Jesus is love and we can know him because he, love, laid down his life. You can't have, if something is an exclusive title, like if, if, if God says, I am love, no one else is exclusively, then, then you can't have someone else claiming that unless he is indeed God. He indeed has the divine nature. He's emanating from the Father. He's the extension of the Father. It's exactly who Jesus claims to be. Reason number five and this is just a little bonus one I threw in. Think about every miracle of Jesus in, in the New Testament. And uh, you might think that this doesn't speak to the divinity of Christ, but I think it at least makes a strong case for Jesus being completely distinct from every other prophet, teacher, shepherd, uh, judge, uh, priest, uh, king. He's just fundamentally different. Every miracle of Jesus in the New Testament is a perfect duplicate of what God did in the Old Testament. For instance, when Jesus turns water into wine in John chapter 2 at Cana, he turns water into wine. That's the first public miracle of Jesus. Well, the very first public miracle to Egypt through Moses and Aaron was Moses putting the staff um, into the Nile and the water turning into blood. That was the first public. Now you might go, well, no, his staff turned into a snake in front of Pharaoh. That wasn't publicized to all of Egypt. This was the first public. When it comes to God redeeming Israel out of Egypt, the first miracle was turning the Nile water into blood. And the first public miracle of Jesus is turning water into wine. You're supposed to, of course, see Jesus as the better Moses. But, but even more than that, he's not just the, like, the one who gets to hold the staff and has the, you know, gets to use borrowed power. You're supposed to see him as the source of the miracles, the source of power that was behind the miracles in the Old Testament. Or think about Jesus multiplying the fish and the loaves um, for the people. Elisha ends up doing that for, the, for his companions in, I think it's 2 Kings, 1 Kings. That's the only time you see like food, uh, apart from Elijah, the oil never running out for the for the widow, um, or was that Elisha? I don't know. 
I'm thinking of two different stories. Either way, the idea of God sustaining and multiplying in the Old Testament, you know, at the, through, you know, whoever it is that he ends up using, but Jesus ends up doing it like himself. Of course, he goes, Father, thank you for this. And then the, the fish and the loaves multiply. You're supposed to see that as a mirror image of what was only done by like at the hands of Elisha or Elijah. Or think about Jesus calming the storm. And we'll get to this. We'll get to this. But when Jesus calms the storm, he's making a statement, bro. Like he has the authority and the power over the untamable chaotic waters of death that no one has power over. No one has that creative power over the seas over the chaotic waters that just destroy. Jesus does. He doesn't just calm the storm twice. He walks on water. Just like we see, uh, you know, um, God essentially doing for his people in Exodus. He allows them to walk through the waters. And they're not walking on the water. He parts the water for them so they can walk through on dry land. Same with Joshua, right? When he splits the Jordan River, they walk on dry land. Jesus is different. He doesn't need the dry land to walk on. He's the one actually that can walk on water and enable others to walk on water like Peter. He invites him and says, yeah, come on. You can walk on water, buddy. Or how about Jesus cursing the fig tree? Jesus cursing the fig tree. I think about Jonah. Remember when Jonah's like, man, forget Nineveh, these bozos. And he's waiting for God to rain down fire. And he ends up having shade from a tree. And then that tree withers after it's, you know, essentially sprouts up overnight. It withers overnight and God causes it to wither like overnight, immediately. And Jonah's like, ah, oh, my shade, dang it. Well, Jesus does the same thing to a fig tree, just right then and there. And then Peter and the boys walk by it later and go, whoa, thing actually withered. Yeah, exactly. Jesus is so much more than we think. Or Jesus curing leprosy. Uh, technically, Elisha did not cure the leprosy of Naaman in 2 Kings or 1 Kings. Uh, Moses also... Uh, not just Moses, not just Elijah, the representative of, of the prophets, but Moses couldn't cure leprosy on his own. Um, remember he puts his, when, when God is commissioning him and going, Hey Moses, <laughs> which would be a cool hat trick. Hey, put your hand in your, in your cloak. Okay, Lord. Oh my gosh, I have leprosy. Put it back in. Oh, it's gone. Yeah. God does that. God does that. Or the same with uh, Miriam. When she speaks a word against Moses, um, she ends up getting leprosy and Moses can't do anything about it. He goes, Lord, please help her. Please heal her. You're supposed to see Elijah and Moses both, uh, even Elisha, rather Elisha, um, not having power to, to cure leprosy apart from God, you know, uh, allowing that to happen. When Naaman comes having leprosy, Naaman's the uh, commander of the Syrian army, and he comes to Israel looking for Elisha, and Elisha doesn't go, ah, yes, you're healed, brother. He goes, hey, jump in the Jordan River. And Naaman's like... I ain't doing that. I got better water where I'm from. He's prideful. And then he changes his mind, jump in, jumps into the river, and he's healed. Leprosy's gone. Well, Jesus doesn't need people to jump in a river. Like, he just touches you, and you're healed. He speaks, and you're healed. Leprosy is gone. Um, he's doing the, these parallel miracles in the Old Testament where you're like, only God could. And Jesus goes, exactly. Paralyzing, uh, not paralyzing people, healing the paralyzed, healing the blind. Imagine Jesus walking around just paralyzing. Reverse miracle, sucker. He healed the paralyzed. He healed the blind. He healed the lame. He healed the deaf. He healed the mute. Just like the prophets said he would. Raising people from the dead like, like Elijah does. Um, except Elijah does this weird stuff where he's like breathing over the kid and, and you know, um, doing what he can. And then life comes back in him. Jesus just goes, hey, wake up. 
he's categorically different. Every miracle is um, can be mirror imaged with the Old Testament. So I, I think that is a strong case for Jesus doesn't just duplicate miracles going, uh, you know, as if to like um, inherently lack the power himself. He seems to be the source of that power, that miraculous power to do whatever it is. Um, it's almost like you're seeing the visible source of the power that did those miracles in the Old Testament. Um, you take it to Matthew 23, 37. I'm all scattered, but it is what it is. Reason number six that Jesus really is God in the flesh is, well, when he's approaching Jerusalem, he starts weeping over Jerusalem. He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The, watch what he says. The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together? As a hen gathers her brood under her wings, you were not willing. How often? Like, bro, you've been alive 33 years. Your ministry has been like barely almost three years. How often could that have been? Could he possibly be talking about during the time that the prophets were sent to Jerusalem and God was sending the prophets to turn them to him in repentance, but they refused. That seems to be consistent. Jesus seems to be saying that I'm the one who desired to gather you under my wings like a mother hen, not to, you know, make him a female, but he's taken that motherly nature of a hen and saying, I had that as, a, as essentially like a caretaker for Israel. And you wouldn't come under my protection. You weren't willing. Right after he says, how often you just killed the prophets and stoned them when, we, when the prophets were sent to you. It seems incredibly consistent that the same time frame he references in verse 37 is the same time frame he's referencing here when he said, I, I would have gathered you under my wings. But here, your, your house is left to you desolate. You won't see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So think about every Old Testament opportunity Israel had to turn back to God, to change their mind, to repent, to you know, turn from their ways, to go, Lord, here we are. How often did God send a prophet? How often did God send messengers and help to turn Israel back to him, specifically Judah and Jerusalem, and they said, nah, forget you, and they actually killed the prophets. How often did that happen? Jesus is referencing those moments and saying, that was me desiring to gather you under my wings. Bro, that's crazy. You go, I don't know, it's a stretch. Deuteronomy 32. <laughs> I don't think it's a stretch at all. I just don't think you want to see Jesus as the one who's actually sending the prophets, inviting Israel to come back to him, who's gathering, wanting to gather his people under his protection, and they refuse to. That would assume he pre-exists his earthly uh, body and he was there to actually be the one commissioning the prophets and sending them and trying to bring Israel to himself You're Supposed to see God in that uh, Deuteronomy 32 um, Why do I have verse 20? Ah This is what um, Like a couple passages that refer to God as like having wings like a like a bird but he doesn't actually have wings. The point is like the, the wings represent his covering, his protection uh, for his people. It says, he found him in a desert land. So God is talking about finding Israel, the nation. In the howling waste of the wilderness, he encircled him, he cared for him. 
He kept him as the apple of his eye, like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young, spreading out its wings, catching them, bearing them on its pinions. The Lord alone guided them. No foreign God was with him. And we already talked about how, you know, in the Old Testament, that guiding, that protecting, that leading is attributed to the angel of God's presence. Um, the only times you'll see this language used, like the protective wings, the covering of the, of the, I don't know, an eagle's wings, um, it's going to be attributed rightly to God. Now, of course, there will be symbolically other birds of prey or other, uh, uh, predator birds that are representative of Babylon or Assyria who are sent into the nation and pluck them up. But the point is that God having the protective wing, he's the only one that is that like has that. Uh, Psalm 17, 8 says, Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me in the shadow of your wings from the wicked. Or go to 91 verse 4. This language of, of having a, a protective covering, such as wings, only attributed to God. He will cover you with his pinions. Under his wings, you'll find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. So when you get to Matthew 23, 37, and you're like, ah, oh, Jesus just really loves his people. It's so much more than that. He's saying, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. He's slotting himself right there where the God of Israel has that protective wing and that nature, that 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 caretaking nature, Jesus is going, yep, that was me. And you missed it. And I long to bring you back and bring you under my covering. You didn't want it. You just didn't want it. And that's a bummer. Jesus is saying you missed out on opportunities for him to gather Israel, specifically Jerusalem under his wings. So I think that's reason number six. I see scripture as communicating. And technically, with the other 31 reasons we've done this, number 37. Math is hard. Uh, we already went over this, but this is reason number seven. It's worth noting again. Uh, I touched on this when I talked about the angel of God's presence. In Jude 1.9, we have Michael the archangel contending with the devil. He's fighting about the body of Moses, whatever the heck that means. And he didn't presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment. Here's what he says. In other words, he does not assume the inherent authority and power to rebuke the devil himself. He says, the Lord rebuke you. The Lord rebuke you. Michael the archangel. Why didn't he just say, hey devil, get back? Because he inherently didn't have the authority. He appealed to God doing the rebuking. The Lord's authority. The Lord's power. He, in other words, Michael is not assuming autonomy apart from God and going, I can just go out and just decimate people. He didn't have that. And yet, uh, in fact, let me take you to Zechariah chapter 3, verse 2. For some reason, I had this written down. Uh, the Lord says to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem, rebuke you. Isn't this a brand plucked from the fire? So God appeals to himself. He's the one rebuking Satan in Zechariah chapter 3. Um, but if you go to Matthew, in other words, you're supposed to see angels as leaving the judgment up to God, letting God condemn the devil and decide his fate and, and rebuking him. Michael appeals to the authority of God's name. Um, even angels, you know, uh, don't assume uh, this inherent 
autonomous authority apart from God to rebuke the enemy. And yet, in Matthew chapter 4, Jesus is on a different level. Just a different level. You know, he takes a few hits from the enemy. The devil comes and tempts him. Hey, you look hungry. Nah, fam. Hey, you want to prove yourself to these people? You can jump out the temple. Ah, nah, fam. He appeals to scripture. Look what he does. After appealing to scripture the third time, this is what he does. Contrasted with Michael the archangel, look at Jesus. Jesus does not need to appeal uh, as if to lack the authority himself. He actually says, hey, be gone, Satan. Like he just decides, you know what? I'm done messing around. It's time for you to get on out of here. And Satan actually has to listen and leave. The devil leaves and has to, just like the demons, obey the voice of Jesus. Wow. That's far different than Michael the archangel and Jude going, yeah, he couldn't even, uh, Michael the archangel going, yeah, I, I had to appeal to the Lord to rebuke him. So you're supposed to see Jesus as having authority over the devil that angels don't. The pre-incarnation, like prior to him taking on human flesh, and especially when he does, he demonstrates that visibly to people. Uh, reason number eight why Jesus really is God in the flesh is because if you go to Matthew chapter 21, specifically verse 9 through 11, we hear, Hosanna, Hosanna, Jesus is coming into Jerusalem, got the people pumped up, got a whole rave going on, and the Pharisee religious leaders are kind of pissed. And they're going, hey, stop that. Jesus, tell them to stop. The, the wieners that they are. And in Matthew 21, 16, he goes, Do you, listen, have you never heard out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you've prepared praise? Whatever Jesus appeals to in the Old Testament, he's quoting the Old Testament there to defend the fact that it is right for people to praise him the way they are. So you go to Psalm 8, verse 1 through 4, here's what he's referencing. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You've set your glory above the heavens. This is not describing any mere creature. This is not describing someone that has a, a beginning and an end or has limited power. This is just describing the true and exclusive only God who has the glory above the heavens, whose name is majestic. There's only one. He says, there's none besides me. Now watch, out of the mouth of babies and infants, you've established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you've set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him? <laughs> and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. You've crowned him with glory and honor. Speaking of humanity, um, David is just flabbergasted. I've never used that word in a sermon, but here you go. He's flabbergasted that God would allow uh, dust creatures like us to have the, the, the abilities and the consciousness and the, the free will decision-making and, and the, the authority on, on God's earth to rule under his authority. He's, he's amazed. But found within this breaking out of praise to the Lord, he's going, oh, You've established strength because of your foes, which gets translated praise. Uh, at least when the New Testament, when Jesus is, you know, probably Greek Septuagint there. But Matthew chapter 21, go to Matthew 21. We have Jesus quoting this to what? To defend the fact that people should actually declare Hosanna, son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Who is this? This is the prophet. They have limited him to merely a prophet. 
or maybe they see him as the prophet Moses, you know, declared would come. And Jesus goes in the temple um, and uh, overturns some temples like you do, or, oh, not the temple, doesn't flip the building over, flips some tables like the G that he is. Uh, and then he goes, it's written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. Whoa, whoa, my house. And you go, well, he's, he's saying that's God's house. Sure, hmm, sure. And yet Hebrews will say, the greater house, the true house, which was actually foreshadowed by the temple, the true house of God, the family of God, actually belongs to Jesus. So the blind man and the lame came, blind and the lame came to him in the temple. He healed them. And when the chief priests and the scribes saw what he did, and the children crying out, Hosanna to the son of David, they were angry. Do you hear what they're saying? And Jesus goes, yeah, I do. The context of the scripture he's about to reference to say, yeah, it's okay what they're doing. They're allowed to praise me and they should, essentially, is he references Psalm 8, which is a declaration of praise to the God of Israel. The context is worshiping the God of Israel and Jesus uses that to justify the crowds declaring his praise and glory. He could have used any other passage, any other passage, but the religious leaders didn't like that they were worshiping Jesus. So guess what Jesus does? He slams down that Psalm 8 card. And he goes, all right, you know exactly what I'm about to say. Psalm 8, baby. Boom. That's of God. Exactly. In fact, I, I believe somewhere else I say, look, if, if these don't praise me, the rocks will. All of creation cries out, don't they? So, Hosanna in the highest. That's reason number eight. Is that this praise... The context of this, honor and praise and glory to God alone, Jesus goes, yeah, that's actually uh, reinforcing the fact that you rightly praise me. Um, let's go to reason number nine, why Jesus really is God in the flesh. And this is technically, again, reason number 40, because we've already looked at 31 in the last episode. Isaiah 8, talking about Jesus being the rock, okay? There's a lot of Old Testament passages, and if you've read your Bible, you know that the Old Testament will refer to the God of Israel as the only exclusive rock or foundation or stronghold. It's speaking to a strong place to build your life on. Okay, so Isaiah 8, it says, He, actually, the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Just like Jesus says, hey, don't fear man who can just kill you and that's it. And you're like, that's it? Yeah, he goes, yeah, God can actually destroy both body and soul in hell. And you're like, oh, yeah. Yeah, I see your point. Let him be your dread. He, speaking of who? The Lord. He will what? Well, he'll become a sanctuary. He'll become a sanctuary and a stone of offense. So notice how the sanctuary, the Lord being a sanctuary to one, means he's a stone of offense to others. The same rock, right, that you can build your life on can be a safe place and a stronghold if you trust in him. But that same rock, God of Israel, can be a stone of offense and you trip over him in the process of trying to be righteous on your own. In other words, he doesn't fit your narrative and your agenda and your life. And you're like, this guy's in the way. Jesus is in the way. That's what he is to the Jews. He's a rock of stumbling to both the house of Israel, 
a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Now notice, many shall stumble on it. They will fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Let me ask you something. Does he say anything about the Son here? Does he say anything about the divine, beloved, only begotten Son who will come, the Messiah? Does he say anything about that? You can go to 1 Corinthians 10, like, like John's saying, don't forget the rock that moved with the Israelites. You can even go there, which we will. 1 Corinthians 10 will make that very clear. But I want you to see this in context. Because we often just assume the New Testament usages of Old Testament passages are always what, how, how the Jews understood it. That's, that's not necessarily true. And it's not wrong that the New Testament authors are taking these Old Testament passages and expanding on them, right? Right, it's not wrong. It's that originally in their, you know, in the original historical cultural context of Isaiah 8, they, they wouldn't have understood this as, oh, the son who will be uh, the, the Messiah and laid on a cross, and they would have missed that, of course. But look, the Lord of hosts here is the stone of offense. He will be a sanctuary to some if you build your life on him. He's a safe place. He's a stronghold. He's a sure foundation. But that same rock, he, the God of Israel, is also a stone of offense to those who reject him. He gets in the way. They trip over him, right? He ends up being, <laughs> that ends up being their downfall is the fact that they don't implement him into their life as their foundation. They build around him or they build it with, without him. And they're like, we don't need no Jesus. We don't need God. And God's like, okay, it's going to cause you damage, emotional damage to both the house of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So do you see it? Who, who are the people, the people who rebel and reject God and his law? Who are they tripping over as the stone of offense? Well, it's the Lord of hosts that they're tripping over. Well, who's the sanctuary and the rock they stand on if they trust in him? It's the Lord of hosts. Who's falling on those who, what's the rock crushing the people who can't stand up under the weight of God's law and his standard? Who, who's the rock? The Lord. Psalm 118. Talks about, and you can, I can pull up any passages uh, in the Old Testament talking about how God is the rock. I don't think I have to necessarily like prove that. This is how God reveals himself. In fact, let me just Google the passage real quick. God alone is the rock. Bible birth. Psalm 62.1. Nah, I don't like that one. Psalm 62.6. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock. Psalm 18.2. Psalm 95.1, let's sing to the rock of our salvation. Psalm 61.2, uh, lead me to the rock who is higher than I. 2 Samuel 22, the Lord is my rock. Psalm 62.7, my ro mighty rock is God. Do you get it? Dwayne Johnson, you got nothing on my God. You are not the rock. You are a piece of uh, foam compared to the rock that is my God. So God is the rock. Psalm 118, it says, I thank you that you've answered me and have become my salvation. This is what it's going to mean for God to be the stone his people stand on. Is that he becomes the context of Psalm 118. This is not even like, <laughs> this is not even Jesus come on the scene yet. This is Psalm 118 before he comes in human flesh. Well, look at the context, Psalm 118. I thank you that you've answered me. God answers his people. He becomes their salvation. How? How? 
by giving them victory and allowing them to come and find protection under his wings. As the stronghold and sanctuary that he is. The stone that the builders rejected. So there are some builders. Sounds like the Tower of Babel. Bunch of people coming in rebellion to God, building their own tower, trying to get to God on their own terms, building without him. Building in rebellion. And God's going, <laughs> I can blow that thing down. The builders, actually in Jesus' day, will be the specifically the religious leaders and the Pharisees alongside the unbelieving Israelites. They're building a system, a faith, a religion that is apart from God and apart from his son, and it's going to amount to nothing just like at Babel. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The cornerstone. So look, the context here is whatever the stone is, whoever the rock is, God has already made it clear. He's the rock. He's the stone. He's the sanctuary of his people. Well, he's the cornerstone that people reject, right? Or he's their salvation as the cornerstone of their life. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Woo! This is the day the Lord has made. Let's rejoice and be glad in it. Now, contextually, just in the day of Psalm 118, God becoming the salvation of his people is being their cornerstone. Being their cornerstone. So think, whenever you hear stone, rock, think salvation. Think security. Think safety. Think refuge. Now, go to Matthew chapter 21, verse 42. Look at this. This is what's said of Jesus. And we can go to 1 Peter 2. We can go to 1 Corinthians 1. We can go to 1 Corinthians 10. All these passages that make Jesus out to be the rock. But, but again, remember, Isaiah chapter 8 and Psalm 118 has God being the stone, the cornerstone, the foundation, the rock of his people. Psalm 118 was about the Lord. That doesn't mean that it's not about Christ. Psalm 21, 42, it says, have you never heard, read in the scriptures, this is Jesus speaking, okay? Speaking to the unbelieving Pharisees and religious leaders. Have you guys never read the scriptures? Which, by the way, would have been like just a, a massive blow to their ego. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Do you know why he quotes that? Because he just gave a parable about a vineyard and how there were tenants who were living on the property, enjoying the fruit, but it wasn't their property. It was not their vineyard. They did not own it. They were leasing, it was leased out to them by the owner. Now the owner ends up sending people to gather the, the rightful fruit that he deserves from his vineyard. The occupants of the vineyard go, nah fam, we don't want to give you fruit. And they end up killing the, the servants who are sent. Eventually the owner sends his son and goes, they'll listen to my boy. He sends his son and the son ends up being killed. And they go, look, we can just take the vineyard if we kill the son. They throw him outside the vineyard and they try and take it for themselves. That's the context of Jesus quoting Psalm 118. Is he saying, you understand Psalm 118, God being the salvation of his people and the cornerstone the builders rejected? That was the son in the parable of the tenants that they rejected. They kicked out the son, which is going to be representative of Jesus being exiled, kicked out of Jerusalem, right? The city of God out in the wilderness where he'll be hung on a cross and, you know, crucified as a criminal and declared unclean, right? 
and they'll suffer right there as a criminal outside the city, just like they threw the son outside the vineyard and said, nah, we'll take this vineyard ourselves." That's representative of the religious leaders and the Pharisees building their own righteousness, their own self-righteous religion and faith and, and you know, their own you know, system without Jesus. But without the cornerstone, everything falls apart and it gets blown over. Ends up being like the Tower of Babel. God will come and just bring that thing toppling down. 1 Peter 2.7 has this same passage applied to Jesus. But I thought it was about God. Exactly. That's, that's the, the tension and the dilemma of these texts. Is We feel forced to choose. Uh, is it God or is it the Son? I see both. Both are legitimate and, and logical and biblical and it's contextual. How do I? The point is you don't have to pick. That's exactly what I'm trying to show you. Is that what God is to his people, what the Son is to his people, the same thing. The Son is the, the word that emanates from the Father, the extension of the Father, the arm of God, the salvation of God, the righteousness of God, the angel of his presence we see in the Old Testament, the presence of God visibly made manifest. It's Christ. First Peter 2, 7, the honor is for you who believe, but for those who don't believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Guess what Peter quotes? Isaiah chapter 8, right here. And Psalm 118. In case you wanted, hey, prove to me Jesus is God on a silver platter. Peter's going, here it is. Remember Psalm 118, it's about God being the salvation and rock of his people. Remember Isaiah 8, that God is the stone that the builders reject and he's the sanctuary to those who trust in him. Yeah, those who believe in the Son and the Messiah here, the, the stone that's laid in Zion, Jesus Christ, those who believe in him, right? He's the cornerstone for their life. Those who don't, he's a rock of offense and stumbling. Okay? This is why 1 Corinthians 1 will say, the Jews demand signs. So that's why he's a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Um, if you go to 1 Corinthians 10, 1 Corinthians 10, it says this. Remember that rock, the spiritual rock that Israel drank from, that brought water, the rock that followed them? And you're like, yeah, God. What does this say? What does that say? It says the rock was Christ. The rock was the anointed Messiah, the one who actually comes as the extension of the Father. Do you see it? So, in, in case there's still some confusion we need to clear up, Jesus is the rock, the exclusive rock that salvation is built on, that you have, if you want to build your life in eternity on something that it will stand the test of time and God's wrath and judgment, it's building your life on Jesus, the cornerstone of the rock, who is exactly God says he is in the Old Testament, the rock, the rejected stone, and the rock of our salvation. Let me add one more passage to this because we've gone over this briefly in Isaiah uh, and Hosea. Isaiah and Hosea. Reason number 10 why Jesus really is God in the flesh according to scripture is because Hosea 13, 4, it says, I am the Lord your God. Who's speaking here? The Lord God of Israel. From the land of Egypt, you know no God but me. Guess what? Besides me, there's no savior. So what is God claiming? 
I am the exclusive savior to my people. There's no one else. What do you do with that? Well, you go to Titus 2.13 and Ephesians 5.23 and you say, how in the world does this make sense? Okay, besides me, there's no savior. Can we agree on that? And you're like, I know where you're going. Do you though? Titus 2.13, it says, we're waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and savior, whoopsies, Jesus. Well, Paul probably messed up, a little typo there. Really? Hmm. Why is Jesus slotted right where God belongs as the only exclusive savior to his people? Why does Ephesians 5.23 do the same thing? And you might say, well, God accomplishes salvation, makes salvation happen through the Son. There's no salvation. I think you are right, but that doesn't minimize or take away from the fact that Jesus is still called the Savior. It'd be different if he's like, hey, the, the guy who brought God's salvation, and he's communicated as bringing the salvation of God, but even more than that, Jesus is defined, not even defined, Jesus is communicated as being the salvation of his people. Like, if you were to, to define in a dictionary, what is salvation? Jesus' name is right there. If you were to go, what does salvation look like? It looks like Jesus. He's the substance of salvation. He's the personification and embodiment of what salvation is. So he's not only salvation as an extension of God, as a way for us to be. He says, look, right here, uh, Christ is the head of the church. His body and is himself, himself, its savior. Now God can appoint those who bring his salvation, like the judges in the Old Testament, um, or like Moses, he, he's a Christ type. He's a kind of savior to bring a physical, you know, redemption and physical salvation from, you know, the Egyptians and from slavery. He is like Jesus in that way. But Moses is not the savior of his people. The judges who were sent are not the Savior. It was always God is the Savior. He's the source. And yet the New Testament wants you to see Jesus in a fundamentally different category. He is rightfully called the Savior. He is the source of salvation. He's not just a means of it. He's not just the way of having it. He's the definition, the substance, the source. He is salvation. We'll look at one more and then we'll take a quick potty break. Reason number 11 why Jesus is communicated in the Bible as the actual, as God in the flesh, okay? Is because here we have this really cool title. Who has performed and done this? And this is talking, essentially God saying, look, I um, bring victory and conquer my enemies. No one can stay my hand. I do whatever I please in the heavens, essentially. Look at, he talks about how he, he drives, uh, them like stubble, his enemies, tramples them under his feet. Who has performed and done this? Calling the generations from the beginning. I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. So who is God revealing himself to be in Isaiah 41? He is the only exclusive one who calls generations from the beginning. Beginning of what? Presumably time. 
He's, in other words, he's the capstones on both ends of, of human history. He's at the beginning, he's at the end. The very first generation of humanity, the very last. He starts the thing, he ends the thing. He's eternally existent. He is the first and the last, essentially. Not just with the first and last generation, but he is there to mark the beginning and end himself. Now go to Revelation 22. This is what Jesus says, rightfully so, of himself. He says, behold, I'm coming soon, bringing my recompense with me Oof. to repay. First of all, he's judge here. He's the one dishing out what people have earned, each one for what he's done. I am the alpha and I am the omega. Working with the Greek alphabet, the first and what else? The last, the beginning and the end. Whoopsies, they must have made a mistake. Nope, they're doing exactly what is needing to happen for us to see it. They're going, yeah, remember Isaiah 41? God's the first and the last, he's with the, yeah. Jesus goes, that's me, I'm the first and the last. And yet he's alongside God, all right? That's, that's the distinction we need to draw. He is still distinct from the Father. All right, quick potty break. For those of you that are on Instagram, I'll be right back. Quick commercial. Uh, jump on YouTube if you want to see it. Link is in my bio. All right. If you've not already done this, go to AboveReproachMinistry.com. We have a bunch of free resources that are made available to anyone around the world, completely free and accessible to anyone who wants to learn how to read the Bible. We have free online Bible study courses that will teach you how to read the Bible. We have free study devotionals that walk you through specific patterns and keywords in the book of Ephesians. We have free Bible study worksheets. We have Bible study workshops. We have all this free content because of generous supporters like you guys. And if you want to support this ministry, we're teaching people how to read the Bible so they can live and teach the Bible themselves. And there are a bunch of ways to donate. You can go to abovereproachministry.com slash donate. You can give through debit or credit card. You can send a check to P.O. Box 338, uh, Green Cove Springs. You can give through PayPal, Cash App, Venmo, Patreon. And then you can also get some church merch. If you've not already grabbed some church merch, I would recommend you do that so you can represent Jesus on your body. And all the proceeds go right back into this content so that we can reach more people and equip people to, you know, live and teach the Bible themselves. And if you didn't know this, I actually have a book. I've published a book. It's called Fruitful. And the point of this book is to be a resource to the church to teach people um, the essential keys for the most abundant Christian life this side of heaven. And so in this book, what I do is I, I outline the gospel absolutely clearly clearly, so you can actually know what the foundational truth is. And then from there, we discover what our purpose is, what our process is, and what our position is now in Christ. So if you are a new believer, or if you're a believer that really wants to understand what I believe are the essential key truths that a lot of people don't understand in the church, I would grab a copy. And if you haven't already joined our online church, get in that online church. We have a lot of cool stuff happening, events every single day, pretty much. Uh, we're in there praying and fellowshipping and gathering and growing together as a community. And the last thing is this. If you haven't already checked out our podcast, uh, we have podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere else where you can get a podcast. And pretty much all the content on YouTube, the live streams, what we do is we um, make that into podcast format so you guys can just listen on the go. So go check that out if you have not already. And let's get back to the video. All right. 
Reason number 12. This is pretty cool. You remember Matthew 28? Jesus uh, about to commission the boys and go, hey, I'm with you to the end of the age. Let me actually take you there, Matthew 28. Jesus is about to shoot off into heaven. Before he does, he says, go make disciples, baptize them, teach them. And look at what he says. Behold, I am with you. He says, I am with you always to the end of the age. Why does he add that? Why does he add that? Why is it helpful to know that he's present in the lives of his disciples? And eventually, the day of Pentecost, it'll be by his spirit. Why, why is that so important? But he also says, to the end of the age. It's almost like th this, for Matthew, this is, a, this is a bookend. This is how he ends his gospel. By Jesus saying, behold, I am with you to the end of the age. Now that's kind of reassuring, I guess, for the apostles. Um, but why not say God is with you? Well, let me take you to Isaiah 41.10. This is small, I get it. When you put all these things together, it makes something big, just like Legos. Think of these, I'm just giving you little Legos. And I'm trying to build a clear picture of Jesus, okay? So he says, I'm with you always to the end of the age. In other words, the assurance and the authority that backs the, the apostles to go and do what he's called them to, he assures them by saying, I'm with you. This is what Isaiah 41.10 says. Um, he says, Israel, you're my servant. This is God speaking through Isaiah. Jacob, whom I've chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend. I love that. Abraham's called a friend of God. Um, you who I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant, and I've chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I'm with you. I'm with you. Don't be dismayed. I am your God. So in Isaiah, when God is um, speaking to his people, I will strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Um, when he's speaking to the people, God reassures them that first of all, he's their God, and second of all, he's with them. And I can't help but see Jesus doing the same thing as being God to the apostles. So in, in the same way that God, you know, um, you might say is reassuring the 12 tribes of Israel, right? Uh, by saying, hey, I'm with you. I'm your God. Jesus is doing that with his, well, 11 apostles because Judas. So the 11 apostles, he's reassuring in that way with that same authority as being God to them. Um, I don't, I'm trying to think off the top of my head if any other biblical character or author does that, where they're like, hey, I'm with you. Like, who cares? Who cares? I just want to know God is with me. That, that's the idea is that Jesus is, is uh, like just letting them know, comforting them, reassuring them, hey, I'm with you, uh, the way God does to his people. We saw a similar thing like this. This is reason number 13. Jesus is the redeemer, not only savior, but redeemer. Um, in Isaiah 41, it says, Fear not, you worm, Jacob. What a nice, comforting thing to say to someone. You men of Israel, I am the one. I guess it just puts people in their place, right? <laughs> this actually like helps people understand. Yeah, you came from the dust, and to the dust you return. All right, sweet, cool. But don't be afraid. God is with you, right? 
He says, I'm the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. So who's the Redeemer of humanity, really? Not just Israel, but who's the Redeemer? It's God. God is the Redeemer of His people. Ephesians 1 7, um, I'm going to see if I can find it. But before I look for that other verse, here's Ephesians 1 7. It says, referring to Jesus in Him, okay, because He's talking about the beloved here. It says, in Him we have redemption. In other words, it makes Jesus out to be the one who is the source, not just the reason, not just the methodology, but the actual source of our redemption, the same way Israel was redeemed out of Egypt. We're redeemed out of sin and death, the greater spiritual redemption. Yeah, Jesus is the source of that, which makes him our redeemer, just like a kinsman redeemer. We see that with Ruth and Boaz and Naomi. Go read that story. That, that's the idea. Jesus is communicated as the kinsman redeemer. It's foreshadowing him as the ultimate redeemer who, who, who takes people under his wings, under his wing, cares for them, supplies them, um, uh, be, is a husband to them in that sense, uh, without getting all weirdly romantic. It's, it's the caring nature of a husband, the, the, the commitment, the loyalty in a marriage covenant. Jesus is that. So he is our redeemer in the New Testament, and he's the source of our redemption. So you're like, is it God or is it Jesus? Once again, you're supposed to see both. It's very fair and it's biblical to say that Jesus is the redeemer and God is the exclusive redeemer because Jesus is, in fact, God in the flesh. Um, and I said I would touch on this later. Reason number 14 is that Jesus uh, calms the storm twice, walks on water. Now, you might not think this is a big deal, but Isaiah 43, 16, um, it says, Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea. Okay, He makes a path in the mighty waters. Think about Israel at the sea, Egypt's right behind them, freaking out, and God splits the water. Or think about Joshua leading Israel, and the Jordan River just, you know, stands up, or stops flowing at least, and they can walk on dry land. He brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they can't rise. They're extinguished, quenched like a wick. What I want you to see, oof, I really want to go to this. I'll make a way in the desert and rivers and uh, in the wilderness is that it is God who makes a way in the sea. In other words, the sea, uh, those untamable waters that are chaotic and terrifying and deadly, like they actually bring death. Uh, you can't survive. Uh, you're actually drowned in the sea, just like Jonah. Um, the sea represents the chaotic kind of death that is unavoidable, that we can't escape, that we have no power over. Um, and yet God makes a way in that out of death for his people on to the other side where life is, where new life is. That's a picture of the born again experience. Um, and it's God who makes a way in the sea. What I want you to know is Jesus does not just part the waters like Moses or like what happens for Joshua. No, he does so much more. He actually walks on water. He actually calms the storm. In other words, I said this earlier, but instead of just making a dry land and going, hey, look, you can walk now. He goes, no, I don't need to make the water go away or stand up. You can walk on the water. Hey, Peter, come on out here. Right? Peter goes, if it's really you, tell me. Okay, come here. Oh, shoot, he called my bluff. 
All right, here I come, Lord. Gosh darn it, why did I do this? All right, I'm coming, Lord. <laughs> just taking a second, just stretching. He invites Peter on the water. He doesn't just make a way in the sea where you, hey, walk on dry land. He goes, I'll make a way like actually on the sea for you to walk. I'll calm the storm itself. Like what happens for Jonah, God calms the storm, right? The, the, the symbology of this is incredible. Jesus is, God is in the Old Testament. I'll start with this. In the Old Testament, and I've done a whole study on this, God is the only one who has the authority and power and dominion and creative force over the chaotic waters of, of death, okay, and the sea. Um, he's the only one that tells the sea, hey, stop there. He puts boundaries there. He separates the waters above from the waters below, right? He brings the waters coming, toppling in at the flood. God is in control and over the waters. No one else is. When Jesus walks on water, he's exactly saying that. I'm the one who has, because who else walked on water? Is there any other biblical character? The, the closest we got is Elisha, where there's an axe head thrown in the Jordan, and, and, and this guy comes and goes, Elisha, that, that wasn't my axe head. I borrowed that. And Elisha goes, gosh darn it. And he throws a little piece of wood, and the Jordan River the axe head floats up, right? That axe head is saved, because a piece of wood was thrown in the chaotic waters of death. Sounds like the cross. But the point is, that's the closest we got. Jesus alone goes, hey, I, I have authority over the waters. I tell the seas to shut down, shh, quiet. Who else does that? I can walk on the waters to show you that I have power over death and I can bring you through it. Who else does that? God is the only one in the Old Testament who has that. I mean, you can trace it all the way from, from the land coming up out of the water and the creation story to Noah and the floodwaters and God preserving Noah through that, right? Um, to Joshua, to Moses going through the Red Sea, to the, the baptism of Naaman, to, you know, all these different, you know, images of God being over the waters and even bringing healing through what was supposed to bring death. The chaotic waters of death, there's a, there's a kind of new life on the other side. There's healing for Naaman. So Jesus is, in fact revealing himself to be that. Like the one that you're like, man, who controls the chaotic waters? Jesus is like, I hear baby. In the most humble way possible. Um, so reason number 15 is in Isaiah 43, 20. Yes, this is the one I wanted to get to. Okay, the Lord says in Isaiah 43, 19, behold, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness, rivers in the desert. Why is it a new thing? Because God has always brought dry land up from the water, right? God has brought his people through the water. Now what he's gonna do is the water's not the issue. The water's actually the solution. The issue is the wilderness. The issue is the dry, barren wasteland of the desert where there is no water. So now the waters don't need to be parted and controlled and tamed. The waters need to come up out to, in order to sustain people in the dry places. So we see the wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches, for I give water in the wilderness. I give water in the wilderness. Rivers in the desert, right? To give drink to my chosen people. So 
Jesus already communicates himself in, in John's gospel, especially as the one who is living waters for his people. Okay. That's already like, uh, what's it called? Sign number one that he's so much more than anyone else in the scriptures. He's the one like who is the waters for his people. Come to me all who are weary laden. Come to me all who are thirst and have a drink. Come to me all who are hungry. I'll be the bread of life from heaven that the manna foreshadowed, right? Come to me, I'll give you food, I'll give you water, I'll care for you, I'll supply your needs. Kind of like how God does for Israel in the wilderness. Interesting, right? So he makes a way in the wilderness. Who else makes a way in the wilderness? Well, making a way in the wilderness essentially means bringing life where there is no life. Who brought water from a rock in the barren wasteland of the wilderness? God. Who was that rock in 1 Corinthians 10? Jesus. Mm-hmm. So he's the source of water or life in the barren wasteland that we call exile, death outside the garden, whatever you want to call it. There's no life. So Jesus goes, well, since there's no life there, I will be the life for my people in the wilderness. And I'll bring life out of those dead places. And specifically, he brings life out of death. So John 4.10, for example, you know, God is saying, look, I'm the one who brings the life-giving waters to my people where there is none. Right? I give water, rivers in the desert. And Jesus goes, hey, to the woman at the well, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, he would have given you living water. Who's the he? It's the who it is that is saying to you. Who is saying to her? Jesus. What's he saying? If you asked me, I would have given you living water. Go down to verse 13. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, the water from the well. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. Not only does Jesus give water, life symbolic of life in dry, barren place, places. But it's water that quenches your thirst forever. It's eternal water that actually satisfies the craving of your soul once and for all. The water I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So this is interesting. Who's the one giving the water? In Isaiah, it was God bringing the water. I give drink. I give water in the wilderness. And Jesus is going, yep, yeah, I'm out here in the actual wilderness, uh, the actual outskirts of the city, with my girl here, who happens to be a Samaritan. And she's getting water out, you know, from the well. And he's giving water. John 10, um, I think this is a good picture, okay? Not only is Jesus the one who gives water, I, I've, I think I've made it abundantly clear, he is, in fact, the living water that our dry, barren souls and hearts long for, okay? This is what's said about Jesus in John 10, and I think it's interesting, because God does say, I'm gonna give drink or bring water to my people in the wilderness. And if Jesus is the water and the people are essentially spiritually were in a wilderness outside of the garden, outside of the presence of God in death because of sin, well, how's water gonna be brought to us? Well, God's gonna send his son who is the water. Look at 
he went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And he stayed there, right? Many came to him. This is key. Just like the Samaritans in John 4. And they said, John did no sign. But everything John said about this man was true. Many believed in him there. So I want you to see this. Jesus is not bringing life into, you know, where you would expect, like the cities, among the prominent, among the influential, among like those people who had riches and like the glories. He's going out in the wilderness where John was baptizing, right? Where it's, you know, we're going to see later in, in the Gospels, the disciples are going to go, hey, there's no food here. This place is, there's no food here, man. There's no water. This is not a place you want to keep people for too long. <laughs> Let's get them out of here because we're hangry too. But people are coming to Jesus who's in, you know, the wilderness, outside the cities. Um, and they're coming and believing in him and getting living water. How are you going to get living water? In other words, he's going into the desolate wilderness bringing eternal living water. He's different than Moses. Moses gives what God provides. Jesus claims to be uh, the source himself and what God is providing. Moses was not the supply, but he did, he was a part of giving the supply, right? Jesus is the supply. He is the source. He has the authority to distribute. He's the rock that gives water in 1 Corinthians 10. So you can read Exodus 15, 25, Exodus 17, 6, Numbers 20, 11. You're going to see Moses is, you know, being a part of the water giving, but he's not the source himself. He's still relying on God. Whereas Jesus goes, hey, come to me all who are weary. You thirsty? I'll satisfy that thirst. You hungry? You're not you when you're hungry. Come and get some spiritual bread. Reason number 16, Jesus is actually the one who gives the spirit. Now this is mainly what the spiritual living waters are symbolic of. It's just referring to the spirit who gives life. So that's why this, the, 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 it, the living water, do, 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 the living water God gives is Jesus who is life and he gives his spirit, right? All like just come together in this picture of life, okay? Water represents life when given by God in a gracious way. So back to Isaiah 44, or um, we didn't go to 44, we were in 43. Let's go to Isaiah 44. And he says, I'll pour water on the thirsty ground, land, and streams on the dry ground. I will pour what? What is the water symbolic of? His spirit. And the thirsty land, the dry ground, is the offspring of Israel who are dry and have hard hearts, who are barren, who are in death, who need life, who need the spirit, who need the presence of God, who need eternal life. Okay? So God is going to pour water on the thirsty land. He's going to pour out his spirit. He's going to send his spirit. Pretty cool, huh? Well, this gets clarified in John 14. Okay? John 14, verse 16 and 17, um, Jesus says, I'll ask the Father, he will give you another helper. Okay, just like Isaiah 44 said, God will give the Spirit, the Spirit of truth, right? He will be in you. Go down to verse 26, same thing. The helper, the Holy Spirit, whom 
the Father will send. In my name will teach you all things. Pause. Hold that. Is the Father sending the Spirit? Absolutely. Now, I'm not saying Jesus is the Father, but I am saying Jesus is God in the flesh. Because the Father and Son doing this work of sending the Spirit together is pretty powerful. Luke 24, 49, he says, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. What promise? Well, the promise of power, which Luke's going to lead right into Acts and say, yeah, that's the Spirit of God. John 15, 26, you know, back to John's Gospel. Jesus says, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you. Jesus, you said the Father's sending him. Isaiah 44 says God sends and pours out his spirit. So what's going on here? We see the Father and Son co-laboring, participating, doing the work together of sending the spirit. If that's the case, then Jesus, you know, has to be God to fit that category in Isaiah 44 of the one who pours out the spirit. The God of Israel is the one who does that. So how dare Jesus claim that? No, he's right. He, he really is who he says he is. Okay. Reason number 17 is that Jesus is actually, well, we see God being in the Old Testament. Okay, Isaiah 45 or 54 verse 5, dithlectic, says, Your maker is your husband. Who's the maker of all things? Pretty straightforward, right? God, God okay. He says, your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. Now, the covenant that God made with Israel at Sinai is likened to a marriage covenant. It walked into a marriage agreement of sorts, right? Hey, we're going to be loyal to each other. Israel was not loyal. So, God being the husband, likened to a husband to the people of Israel, the bride, it's interesting that 2 Corinthians 11 says this, in verse 2, Paul says, I feel a divine jealousy for you. I betrothed you to one husband. Well, who's playing the role of husband to the church, the body of Christ now? God is the husband to his people. He's the, he's the one who rightfully plays that role that we see in the Old Covenant to Israel. Why is Jesus being the husband? To present you as a pure virgin to Christ, in case you didn't see it. Hmm. Interesting. So that whole, the new covenant now, is again likened to a marriage covenant, marriage contract, the bride in Christ, but instead of us upholding our end of the covenant, Jesus, as the husband, goes, I'll uphold your end of the covenant, my bride, and the Father will uphold His end of the covenant. So we're in, we're in covenant. We're in agreement. We're one. I and the Father are one. If you're in me, you're in the Father. That's what Jesus says. Um, and so the point here is that Jesus plays, not plays the role, but effectively uh, is what God is to His people, which is the husband. He plays that role. Now, if Jesus was less than... God, um, it would kind of be uh, at least interesting that a, a mere created human would be playing that role to the rest of humanity when God is the only one who has that exclusive uh, position. Speaking of exclusive positions, 
I'll take you to Psalm 23. Reason number 18. Jesus is the shepherd. Now watch. David says, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. The Old Testament paints a strong picture of God being the shepherd of his people. We're not arguing that. I'm just trying to give you at least one verse, okay? So, John 10, 11, Jesus is going to stand up. He's going to say, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep, and that includes Israel, not just Israel. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd doesn't own the sheep, sees the wolf coming, and leaves the sheep. So the hired hand is not what Jesus is claiming to be. Hired hand doesn't own the sheep, and doesn't really care for the sheep. He's a hired hand. He cares nothing for the sheep. Jesus is the good shepherd. He owns the sheep. He cares for the sheep. He lays his life down for the sheep. But I thought God is my shepherd. In Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. Paint you a little more of a picture. Ezekiel 34, 7 through 10. God is not happy. Not happy with the shepherds that he's appointed over Israel, he's not happy. He says, Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely, because my sheep, notice how he takes ownership of the sheep, though he's appointed shepherds. The difference between Jesus being saying, I'm the good shepherd, is number one, he's claiming exclusivity. I am the good shepherd. Every other shepherd before Jesus was not a good shepherd, number one. Number two was not the true shepherd of of God's people, being God himself. God here owns the sheep. There are shepherds he's appointed, prophets, priests, um, those who teach the law, those who instruct the people prophetically and hear from God. Um, Those who are called shepherds over Israel, they don't own the sheep. God claims ownership of his sheep. It's very important. They've become a prey, and my sheep, my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts since there was no shepherd. In other words, Ezekiel's painting a picture of, we're looking for a shepherd. No one fits the bill. Who's going to be a better shepherd than God himself? No one. Because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, I am against the shepherds. I will require my sheep. Over and over, guys, this is, is, not only does he own the sheep, he owns the shepherds who were appointed to care for the sheep. You've not fed my sheep. Notice how many times he says my sheep. Okay. And I will put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. Watch what he says. This This gives me chills. I'm not even kidding. I will rescue my sheep. How does he do that? How does he do that? He actually comes to shepherd the sheep himself. (laughs) This is the best way to explain it. God's appointed human shepherds over his sheep, people of Israel. They're failing. He's going, my sheep are like without a shepherd, man. There's no shepherd. In fact, that's exactly what, what, G, what the, the gospel says when Jesus looks at the people. He goes, man, they're like sheep without a shepherd. There's no one to shepherd them. So what does God do? He goes, I'll rescue them myself. I'll take care of them myself. I'll be the shepherd myself. 
It's exactly what Jesus ends up being. It's crazy, y'all. This is, this is the God we serve. Is he doesn't go, let me send someone. He goes, yeah, no one's going to fit that bill. No one's going to play that role. No one's going to meet that standard. No one fits the description, so I'll be it myself. And I'll come down in the flesh. Look at 11, verse six, 11 through 16. Thus says the Lord God, I myself will search, out my, will search for my sheep, and I will seek them out. Do you remember the parable of the shepherd that's looking for the sheep in Luke? Jesus talks about how there's a parable of a woman looking for a coin. She finds it. Woo! Right? And then there's the parable of the uh, shepherd who has 99 sheep, but one's missing. Or 100. He has 99 that are found. There's one that's missing. He goes searching for the sheep. He finds it. Yes! Throws a party. Let's go! And then the last parable in that sequence is the parable of the prodigal son. The son comes home after leaving the father and the father goes, let's go, let's celebrate, boy. And the older brother goes, I never get a party. So God goes, I'll search for the sheep myself. What does that sound like? Sounds like John 10, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Or in the parable of the, the shepherd, the shepherd that seeks out the sheep, that's Jesus explaining why he's going to the tax collectors and the sinners. Because the religious leaders are going, why are you going with them? I'm seeking out my sheep. You get it? I'm here. That's what he's saying. I'm here. Let me tell you a parable to explain to you. Ezekiel told you. Ezekiel told you, no shepherd fits the bill. Y'all abusing my people. I'm here to rescue my sheep, find them, and bring them into the fold. And I'll lay my life down as the good shepherd that Psalm 23 speaks of. I will search for my sheep and I'll seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he's among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep. This is the protective, loving heart of our God. He is the heart of a shepherd. I will rescue them from all the places where they've been scattered. Why do you think the New Testament uses that language? It's like they were sheep without a shepherd. It's like they're scattered. I will bring them from the peoples. I will gather them from the countries. I will bring them into their own land. And you're going, well, this happened when they came back from Babylon. Loser. Can't be Jesus. Yeah, they did come back from Babylon, right? But they fell right back into the vicious cycle of Ezekiel 34, 7 through 10. Sheep without a shepherd, once again lost, once again scattered. So God does it physically when they, he brings them back from Babylon. And that is primarily what he means. But that's not the main way we are scattered and lost without a shepherd. Spiritually, we're depraved and lost without the shepherd. We're wandering in darkness. We're enslaved to sin. We're belonging to the enemy. We're rebels of God. So what does God do? He comes and finds us himself. So if you're going to say, well, this is just talking about them coming back from exile and going into the land. That was just a picture of the ultimate God taking on human form, shepherding people spiritually into life. He says, I will feed them with good pasture. What does the shepherd do in Psalm 23? He leads them beside green pasture, still waters. The Lord does that, right? They'll lie down. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. 
Do you see it, man? He doesn't say, you know what, I'm going to make someone like a really cool sheep. I'm going to shepherd them myself. Since no one else can, what do you, who do you think Jesus is? He's the good shepherd. He's the shepherd of the people. God says, I'll be that. Boom. Incarnation. I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord. I will seek the lost. I'll bring back the straight. I'll bind up the injured. I'll strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong. And I'll destroy. I will feed them in justice. So you can't say this was entirely fulfilled just in Israel coming back from exile. Because they fall right back into this again. It's a vicious cycle. So, does God own the sheep? Yeah. Jesus also takes ownership of the sheep as the good shepherd. John 17, I'm praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you've given me. Speaking of his sheep, they are yours. And you go, ha, gotcha. Jesus can't be God. Nope, keep reading. All mine are yours. Yours are mine. I'm glorified in them. What's going on? Dual ownership. Dual ownership of the sheep. The good shepherd, leaving his glory, coming into our world, putting on human flesh, shepherding, feeding, caring for, laying down his life, and bringing us into the fold. Because no one else could. In John 21, speaking of Jesus owning the sheep, look at what he says. He's restoring Peter here. Right? Peter did a couple no-no's. When they finished breakfast, Jesus said, Hey, Peter, do you love me more than these? He said, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Okay, feed my lambs. Well, interesting. Jesus telling one of his shepherds to feed his sheep. Look at that. Look at that. He said to him a second time, Simon, do you love me? He said, Lord, you're embarrassing me. I, you know I love you. He said, then tend my sheep. Because Peter's going to be one of the primary shepherds over the church in the early stages. Right? In its infancy, Jesus commissions them to shepherd, to care, to teach. He said to him the third time, do you love me, Peter? Peter was grieved and said, you know I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Notice, love for God equates to caring for his sheep. Why does Jesus slide right into that position himself? I'm the good shepherd. Care for my sheep. That's how you love me. Because you are supposed to see the good and ultimate true shepherd of humanity, God himself, as taking on human flesh. He's come. He's done what he said he would. In fact, reason number 19, Jesus is actually the judge of the sheep. In Ezekiel 34, 17, the Lord says, As for you, my flock, behold, I judge between sheep and rams and goats. Right here. Okay? I judge. Put a pin there. Matthew 25, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. Now, this is not making Jesus the Father. This is making Jesus alongside the Father as God in the flesh. 
Before him will be gathered all the nations. He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will place the sheep on his right, but his goat, the goats on the left. So his sheep and the goats. Why is Jesus doing the judgment between sheep and goats that God says he judges and makes judgment about as the Lord? Because Jesus is God. He really is. Let's keep going. Um, we already looked at how Jesus is the bread of life and the river of living waters, like the source of life himself. So I'm going to skip over number 20 because we kind of touched on that. Jeremiah 2.13, Jeremiah 31.25. You can go look up those scriptures. For those that are didn't catch it, Jeremiah 2.13. Jeremiah 31, 25. All right, let me take you to Isaiah 45, 21. This is reason number 21. God alone makes righteous. Okay? This is us admitting, I am not righteous. I'm, I don't meet the standard of God. I'm not good enough. I'm not perfect. I don't, I'm not acceptable in his presence apart from God helping me and making me righteous. I need him to make me righteous. God alone makes righteous. Okay? Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? Who's speaking here? God. There's no other God besides me. A righteous God and a Savior. There's none besides me. Okay? Because he's righteous, if you scroll down to verse 24, only in the Lord it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all who are incensed against him, but he will be justified. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel shall be justified. God is righteous, which is why he is able to make righteous. Whenever God effectively declares someone right in his sight or righteous, it is just and it is fair and it is right for God to do that. So the question becomes, how can a righteous, loving, just God who must punish evil, how can he declare human rebels, enemies, dead in sin, evil to the core, how can he declare us righteous? I'm glad you asked. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. He's the payment for our sins. A propitiation means appeasement of wrath, payment in full for our sins. Not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. So payment was made by someone who is righteous in order to effectively make us what 2 Corinthians says, we are the righteousness of God. Jesus makes righteous. When in scripture, it is only God whom righteousness is found in and who can declare someone to be righteous. No one else has that authority, power, and ability. And yet, 1 Corinthians 1, we are in Christ Jesus who became to us wisdom, righteousness, 
and sanctification. Jesus, we've, we've done an episode on this, so I'm not going to belabor this point. Jesus is righteousness. He is the righteous one. He can make righteous. He's standing in the place of God as being the one who can declare someone right, acceptable, and just. And he can justly do that because he made the payment in full. No one else has done that. Reason number 22, and these will be faster, because I'm trying to make our prayer VC on Discord. Tired of being late and missing it. John 14, 23. Jesus is actually omnipresent. You have to think about this. Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. Now, this is anyone. Anyone throughout human history, anyone across time, anyone across the planet. Anyone who loves me will keep my word, which is to believe, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him. This is where I like to push back against people who go, Jesus is the Father. Well, then he has multiple personality disorder because he's making his singular personhood multiple. He's complicating things. Unless there's a category for someone who is alongside God, yet God at the same time, which there is. So he says, we will come to him and make our home with him. How, How can Jesus come to anyone across time? across space, across the planet? How can he come to everyone and anyone who loves him and believes in him and make his home with them? Doesn't that assume omnipresence? Doesn't that assume that Jesus is not restricted to space? Can actually like fill anyone and be present in countless different places all at once? Who do we know has the only, like the only being in existence has that ability to be everywhere all at once? So why does Jesus have the capability of omnipresence? We will come to him that only God has. Some created human being who, if, if Jesus is a created human, shouldn't have that ability. Well, God can give him that ability. That would show me in Scripture where that's a possibility. Where God gives a created thing, created being, the ability to be everywhere all at once. And don't just say oxygen because we don't know what the spiritual realm is like, or the heavenly realms, or even to what degree. God actually, His glory fills the earth, every crevice. Um, so, I'm talking living, conscious beings being present everywhere. Not something that fills the earth, like gas or oxygen or light, which there are places where there are neither. So I guess I win. And God fills even those spaces, even in hell. The psalmist says, even if I make my bed in Hades, uh, there you are. Under the earth, there you are. You can't escape God. The places where even in the spiritual heavenly realms, uh, I don't suppose there would be the need for certain things that we see in this world. Um, so I would say that even possibly oxygen, is it, in, is it in the spiritual realm? I don't know. I don't know. Speculation here. But the point is Jesus is where even those things stop. In the hearts of his people. Anywhere. Anywhere and everywhere. 
The glory of God fills the earth. And we already saw that Jesus is the glory of God. Uh, reason number 23. I don't want to take too much time. Jesus has an everlasting kingdom. Okay. What I should have mentioned with the whole rock thing is that in Daniel's vision of all the kingdoms, there's a massive, you know, entity. It's like a big old statue formed out of like clay and bronze and iron. And it represents all the different kingdoms and the eras of human history. And eventually, at the end of it all, this rock comes flying out of the heavens and just decimates the whole thing. Which that statue represents human kingdoms. And this rock ends up being a heavenly kingdom that destroys all the human ones and stands forever. Ends up being Christ. Daniel 6.24. Watch this. Okay. Uh, The king... Persia, he says, I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel, Mm. King Darius, because he was thrown in the lion's den, Daniel, and he survived. Whoa. So King Darius is like, dang, he's the living God. He endures forever. His kingdom will never be destroyed. His dominion shall be to the end. Whew. We got to jump on board with that God and that kingdom. Now, in Daniel's vision, going back to um, the Son of Man, this is what's said of the Son of Man. He said, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man. He came to the Ancient of Days, and he was presented before him to the Son of Man, just so we're clear. To this Son of Man was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is everlasting, which shall not pass away. His kingdom shall never be destroyed. Jesus' kingdom and his authority and rule and dominion is what's represented by that rock in Daniel's vision that comes crashing in on the, the statue of all the human kingdoms. He destroys it all. He destroys it all. Jesus is given everlasting dominion. Now, people like to really focus in on the fact, well, he's given it, which means he lacks it. This is Jesus as the perfect and first resurrected human getting back what humanity forfeited. Our forfeited rule, our forfeited authority over the earth, right? Our ability to effectively steward and cultivate in, in 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 a world where there's no problems under the authority of God, we forfeited that. So what does Jesus do? He wins it back by going into the grave, breaking forth in victory, conquering sin, death, and the devil, and getting back what is called an everlasting dominion and kingdom because it's built on him. So this is not Jesus or the Son of Man getting something he lacked. This is something, this is him getting something we lacked, and he decides to be the means and the one to get it for us. And it's everlasting. So Jesus, so the question becomes, is is Jesus' kingdom everlasting? Or is God's kingdom everlasting? In chapter 6, verse 26, his kingdom will never be destroyed. Is it God's kingdom, God's dominion, or Jesus's, the Son of Man's? And you're supposed to see both. The answer is both. Okay? Um, here's what we're going to do. I have one, two, three, four, five. I might just save these for Friday, man. Um, 
I know it's going to go over 30 today, but I really want to join the prayer VC. Um, so what I'm going to do is I have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Ah, uh, I could actually crank these out pretty fast. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to quickly get some water and go pee. It won't be the full commercial. I promise it'll be like half. I'll be right back. If you've not already done this, go to AboveReproachMinistry.com. We have a bunch of free resources that are made available to anyone around the world, completely free and accessible to anyone who wants to learn how to read the Bible. We have free online Bible study courses that will teach you how to read the Bible. We have free study devotionals that walk you through specific patterns and keywords in the book of Ephesians. We have free Bible study worksheets. We have Bible study workshops. We have all this free content because of generous supporters like you guys. And if you want to support this ministry, we're teaching people how to read the Bible so they can live and teach the Bible themselves. And there are a bunch of ways to donate. You can go to AboveReproachMinistry.com slash donate. You can give through debit or credit card. You can send a check to P.O. Box 338, uh, Green Cove Springs. You can give through PayPal, Cash App, Venmo, Patreon. And then you can also get some church merch. If you've not already grabbed some church merch, I would recommend you do that so you can represent Jesus on your body. And all the proceeds go right back into this content so that we can reach more people and equip people to, you know, live and teach the Bible themselves. And if you didn't know this, I actually have a book. I've published a book. It's called Fruitful. And the point of this book is to be a resource to the ch- I told you to be fast. All right, reason number 24. In Deuteronomy 13, 6 through 9, this is what God declares in his law about any of your family members leading you astray to worship false gods. Deuteronomy 13, 6 through 9, if your brother, the son of your mother, the son of your daughter, or your daughter, or the wife you embrace, or your friend, pretty much anyone who is as close to you as it can get, blood relatives, if they say, hey, they're enticing your soul secretly, let's go serve other gods. Some of the gods of the peoples, right? Don't yield to him or listen to him. Don't even pity him. You need to not conceal him, but you need to actually put him to death. And afterward, the hand of all the people. Now, we see this happen. Um, Deuteronomy 13. Actually, I retract that statement. I can't remember where this happens. But I want to show you this allegiance, this loyalty to God over even blood relatives. Because what they're really trying to do when that happens is they're leading you into death and destruction, right? They're trying to destroy you, whether they know it or not, unintentionally, maybe intentionally. They're saying, let's go worship false gods, which, inv- which was to abandon the God who gives you life and keeps you, uh, you know, sustains you. Um, so he's essentially saying, you know, choose loyalty to God over loyalty to family. Do you know what Jesus says? He actually says that same pretty much thing without the killing. <laughs> except for himself. He says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. This is what it means to take up our cross and follow Jesus. Is that it it means I actually prefer my loyalty to God over any degree of love and loyalty I have to my family members if the two are at odds. If my family members are telling me to go against God and his word and abandon him and leave him, my loyalty is to Jesus. My allegiance is to him. He holds my life. They don't. He created me. They did not. He sustains me. He promises me eternity. He made a way for salvation. They did not. So this is interesting. When you go back to Deuteronomy, God's essentially saying, worship no one except me. 
And if blood, if you choose, you know, the whole point of worshiping and loving God is to prefer him and be dedicated to him more than you are even to blood, you know, relatives. Um, and Jesus makes that statement essentially without the death about himself, that to prefer family over Jesus and to be taken away from him and to abandon him because you listen to family and love family more is to not be worthy of what he's done for you or who he is. So Jesus kind of puts himself in that slot, huh? Doesn't he? Um, Luke chapter one, verse 16 through 17. This is reason number 25. Um, this is what uh, the angel tells Zechariah. Zechariah is the father of John the Baptist. And in verse 16, the angel says, hey, John the Baptist, Johnny B, he's going to turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. You might want to read that again. That was a weird way to drink, but I was holding my spoon. I don't have to explain that. He will turn, John the Baptist will turn many of the children of Israel to who? To the Lord. So John will go before who? The Lord. Just, just, to, just to note that, John is turning many people to God. We see this at the Jordan River. He's preparing the way for God, and he's going ahead of God to make preparation. In the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to watch, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So, who is Johnny B preparing people for? Well, just like you'd prepare a bride for her bridegroom, John's going to make that same kind of analogy and say the same kind of thing. Look, because people are going to go, oh no, John, we're losing disciples. They're all going to Jesus. And John goes, look, I rejoice because I'm just, I'm just the guy, uh, the best man at the wedding, you might say. Uh, he's the bridegroom. He gets the bride. Jesus is worthy of the bride. I, I'm not. I'm just here to, I'm happy to be at the wedding, you know. Um, I forget where that is. But Luke chapter 4, look at this prophecy in Isaiah 40, okay? Uh, John the Baptist was proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Every valley shall be filled. They'll see the salvation of God, okay? Um, Try to think where to go next. The point of this is, um, John the Baptist is directing people to who? To God. Who's he preparing the way for? God. Uh, who's he preparing the people for? God. Who ends up coming uh, to be that one he's prepared the way for? To be the revealed Messiah? To be the one that... Uh, John's been preparing people to see, it ends up being Jesus. In other words, in the, in the mind of Isaiah the prophet, in the mind of Zechariah, in the mind of the angel, in the mind of John the Baptist, John the Baptist has a role to say, hey, make straight the way of the Lord. Pre get ready for him. He's coming. 
And then eventually he'll say, there he is, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's been preparing the way for the Lord. That's Jesus, the Lamb of God. He's turning people to who? The Lord. That's Jesus. I mean, several of John's disciples end up following Jesus because of John the Baptist's ministry. All he's saying is, look, there he is. Go, go. I'm just getting you ready for him. He's here. Go see him. Go follow him. Go walk with him. So John the Baptist goes before God, the Lord, ends up being Jesus, the visible presence of God. Um, reason number 26, I'm like stretching my legs as best as I can because they're getting tired. Yes, I'm standing. Luke 1.43, it says, uh, this is Rebecca. Uh, no, not Rebecca. Why did I say Rebecca? Elizabeth, the cousin of Mary. And uh, she sees Mary and she goes, oh, why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? Now, that might seem like a small statement. But think about it. Elizabeth recognizes the baby in Mary's belly is her Lord. What other category is there in Hebrew thinking besides God being the Lord of his people? Is she thinking king, master, ruler, the one who reigns, uh, the human ruler, son of man for God? Or what is she thinking? I, I don't know. But I will tell you that early on in Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 2, I want to show you something. I think this, this kind of clarifies what she might mean when she says, Lord, I think she recognizes that um, more than just Messiah, more than just anointed one, more than just the promised seed of the woman, more than just the prophet Moses said would come, more than just the ultimate you know, uh, king who will destroy the enemies of God, that she might even recognize that it is God um, in her midst, just, just reaching a bit. But in Matthew 2, 9, after listening to the king, we have the wise men coming from the east, and they're following a star, okay? And the star they saw when it rose went before them. Watch what happens. This star, so think of brightness, think of radiance, think of like a big glowing sign. Right here, baby! The star rested over the place where the child was. And this is Jesus. Now I want you to think back to the Old Testament. Is there any, in other words, the star rests over the place where Jesus is to let them know who is there. Because the star was leading them to Jesus. Is there anything else in the Old Testament you might say was bright, clear, and led people um, on behalf of God or to God? In Numbers chapter 9, verse 18, you had the tabernacle, okay? And when the people of Israel, when God was telling Israel, hey, it's time to leave camp or moving on somewhere else, um, the cloud or whatever it was that rested over the tabernacle um, would say, hey, let's go. 
I'm not explaining it at all. Look at verse 18. At the command of the Lord, the people of Israel set out. Uh, and at the command of the Lord, they camped. The command of the Lord came through the cloud and what it did in relation to the tabernacle. So as long as the cloud rested over the tabernacle, which I want you to think about this. Tabernacle meant dwelling place of God. Of course, God reigns from heaven. Heaven's his throne. But the tabernacle was the dwelling place. It symbolized the presence of God because the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, so the tab think tabernacle, think dwelling place, think place of abode, abode, place of abiding, place where God dwells among his people. And the cloud resting over this tabernacle let them know that they should remain in the camp. And when the cloud continued over the tabernacle many days, the people of Israel kept the charge of the Lord and did not set out. Okay? So the, what the cloud did, where it settled, was an indication of where the people of Israel need to camp. The cloud here was not just, I don't believe it's just a sign or a symbol, um, but if you read the Exodus narrative, it seems that the pillar of fire and the, the pillar of cloud that led the people of Israel was in fact the presence of God himself. In other words, it was the visible presence of God. We have the invisible, which is kind of tucked away in the tabernacle, and we have the visible presence of God. You might say the glory cloud, the cloud of glory. This, this happens when the tabernacle is instituted. This happens with the temple. This happens when certain debacles break out and scandals, and God has to like step in as dad and be like, my kids, you guys making me insane. And he has to step in. The cloud would symbolize the presence, the glorious presence of God, and it rested over the tabernacle. Even when the tabernacle, you know, the cloud continued over the tabernacle many days, they would keep the charge and not set out. Sometimes the cloud was a few days over the tabernacle, and other times um, it remained from evening until morning. When the cloud lifted, they would set out. If it continued, they would stay. So in other words, if the cloud is over the tabernacle, they know, hey, we're parking it here. If it lifts, they know, oh, God's telling us to leave. That, that's exactly what we see happening with the star in Jesus. Numbers 10.36, when it rested, the cloud, return, O Israel, to the 10,000, O Lord, to the 10,000 thousands of Israel. So um, there's a lot of imagery in the Old Testament of the presence of God hovering over or resting, uh, whether it's the spirit resting on people or the spirit hovering over the waters. So I think when you go back to Luke 143, uh, what makes, or Matthew 2.9, what makes Elizabeth's statement seem more like she recognizes a divine presence possibly is the fact that the wise men from the East follow a star that rests over where the child was the same way the cloud was resting over the tabernacle to note, hey, God is saying, park it here, or he's lifting the cloud to tell you to move out. In other words, the star and cloud both led the people to where God wanted them. And ultimately, the star rested, or the cloud rested over the actual presence of God, the invisible presence in the tabernacle. And I think the star resting over the place where Jesus is, is letting you know the new tabernacle is in fact Jesus. He's the greater perfect temple, tabernacle, dwelling place of God, God among his people, God with us, Isaiah 9. Um, he, he really is 
what the tabernacle foreshadowed and, and symbolized. He's here. Um, so I think that's helpful to think of it like that. And that's why the wise men come and worship him, right? They worship a boy. Uh, reason number 27, I believe Jesus really is God in the flesh, which combine this with 31, and we're on 58, if my math and my 10th grade math helped me correctly. John 14, 15, watch this. Um, I'll say this. In the Old Testament, when the prophets or men of God, priests, would, would speak on behalf of God, they would say, thus says the Lord, or um, this is what God declares, or these are the commands of God. The prophets wouldn't claim the commandments of God were their own. Um, they would claim the commandments they're given are authoritatively from God. They're his commands. Follow them. Do what he says. Um, but Jesus, in John 14, he says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. He doesn't say the commandments. He doesn't say this commandment. He doesn't say his commandments. He actually claims ownership of the commandments he's given. And he claims to be the source of those commandments. They're, they're mine. Keep them if you really love me. And I'll ask them. In other words, he's, he's, you're supposed to see the same authority that was backing the prophets and and the men of old to speak on behalf of God, that same authority is now visibly present and manifest in the, the flesh of Jesus. He, like, he's right there. The one who told the prophets what to say, the one who gave them commandments, he, he's right there. And now he's letting you know that the authority is mine. The commandments are actually mine. If you go to Isaiah chapter 40, verse 8, for instance, um, it says, the word of our God stands forever, okay? Um, Moses and the prophets refer to the words they speak as the word of the Lord, okay? They won't say my words, they'll say God's words, his words, his commands. Matthew 24, 35, Jesus says, hey, heaven and earth will pass away. My words? Now, he doesn't say God's words. That doesn't mean they're not, they're, they're inconsistent with God's word or his character, but it's precisely that. You're supposed to see like, oh, 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 the same way that God instituted the laws and the commands for the people of Israel and said, these are my commands, listen to my voice. This is Jesus on that same level of authority himself, saying my words will not pass. They don't contradict the Torah. They don't contradict Hebrew scripture. They don't contradict the character of God. But he's saying, yeah, my commands, obey them. My words won't pass away. He's claiming claiming ownership as the authority behind those. For instance, if you go to Matthew chapter five, uh, he'll say, hey, you know, you've heard it said, da, 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 da. But I say that, and he's expanding on the law or, or clarifying what the law said as the authoritative figure who actually can say what it's saying correctly, as opposed to the laws and or the, the scribes and the Pharisees who really misinterpreted the law of the day. For instance, on the Mount of Transfiguration, we saw this. After everything clears, Moses and Elijah are gone. Peter makes, puts his foot in his mouth. Uh, the cloud overshadows the sun. Interesting, right? 
We just talked about the cloud overshadowing the tabernacle and the star resting on the place where the sun was. And now the cloud, the visible symbol of God's presence there that we see in the Old Testament too, hovering over the sun to note what? He indeed is the tabernacle. He's tabernacled among you. God is here. He's with us. But nonetheless, the father says of the son, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. His words, his commands, as if he's the divine source of the authority. It doesn't mean he's not appealing to or looking to God or relying on God. It means Jesus is making a statement. I really am God among you. That's why I'm saying obey my commands, listen to my laws, my words won't pass away. The Father validates that. Listen to him. Listen to his words. Moses and the prophets uh, culminate in him. Pretty cool. So Jesus is claiming the divine authority of God to institute these laws and to claim or to command allegiance to his words and the eternal nature of what he says. They'll, they won't pass away like heaven and earth. Okay, this is a small one. This is reason number 28, which is technically reason number 59, why Jesus is God, but it's um, Luke 8, 39. We have the demoniac healed out there in the country, out there where the demons dwell. And uh, Jesus gets into the boat. He's about to leave because the people are like, go, shoot. You heard of piggies, leave, leave, leave. And the man from whom the demons had gone out, he begged that he might be with Jesus. Can I be with you? Can I go? And Jesus sent him away saying, no. Retur watch, watch the language, return to your home. And this is intentional on the part of Luke. Declare how much God has done for you. Okay. He went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had, I, I'm smiling at this because we, we miss these breadcrumbs. We miss these breadcrumbs. Living wa life giving water comes from the clouds, like what John said. And there are waterless clouds for sure, but the cloud of God's presence, woo! So, what did the man, the demoniac that's now healed, what did he do? He went and told everyone what Jesus did for him. No, no! Demoniac man, who used to be a demoniac. You, you're supposed to tell people what God did for you, man. Come on, what are you doing? He, I am. And Luke the historian isn't uh, distinguishing between the two. He's actually expanding on what this means. Jesus goes, hey, go tell everyone what God did for you. He, okay. Guys, Jesus did, mm, mm. Is he who he says he is? Does the scripture really communicate Jesus? Tell us that Jesus is God in the flesh. Let me lob you a softball. Matthew 1.23 The virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They'll call his name Emmanuel. All this took place of what the Lord spoke by the prophets. Okay? Do you know what Emmanuel means? I mean, <laughs> why? How much more evidence do we need, my guys? God with us? Come on. Is that said of any other prophet or man of God or, or teacher or shepherd or priest or 
or king or, or judge that God is with us in this person? Now again, in, in surrounding cultures and their religions, they pictured their ultimate ruler as really being God in their midst, like Pharaoh. Therefore, the Lord himself, Isaiah 7, this is what's being quoted, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son, call his name Emmanuel. So the Lord himself gives a sign. Okay? What you need to see is that God actually intends to tabernacle, I used that word on purpose, dwell, abide with us, come among us in the form of this baby who's going to be called Emmanuel. Why? God with us. Is God with us? How? Same way the presence of God's angel or the angel of God's presence appears to Gideon and Gideon goes, if God's with us, why is all this happening? And the angel of God's like, I'm right here and you're missing it, you nerd. Last one for today, okay? Reason number 30, Jesus reads minds and knows hearts. That's not a big deal. Oh, it's a huge deal, my friend. Okay, this is what Solomon says as he's, in, you know, erecting the temple. Hey, God, um, you know, uh, if we reach our hand toward this house and we've done something wrong and we pray, God, here in heaven, your dwelling place, forgive us. Render to each whose heart you know, according to all his ways. Now pause. You and you only know the hearts of all the children of man. Read that again. You, you only, know the hearts of all the children of mankind. John 2.25, Jesus knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man. He knew what was in man. And you're like, well, that's not saying he reads minds or knows the hearts of people. I'm just trying to let you know, God alone can read the hearts and minds of people. 1 Corinthians 2 talks about how um, the Spirit searches even the depths of God. Watch. Who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? In other words, no one can know the thoughts of a person except the spirit of that person. Notice the distinction between the thoughts and the spirit. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. So the point is, the thoughts of a person are subject to the person and can only be known by the person and the God who created that person. Because guess what? You, God alone, you only, this is an exclusive term, you only know the hearts of all the children of man. Interesting. Acts 15.8, God who knows the heart. Okay, so we've established that. God alone knows the heart, and only the people who are have those thoughts know their thoughts. No one else can, because they're immaterial. Luke 6.8, this is what Jesus is said of Jesus. There's a man with a withered hand, walks in on the Sabbath to the synagogue, Everyone's looking at him, seeing if Jesus is going to heal him. He knew their thoughts. Clear as day. Clear as day. He knew their thoughts. Luke eleven seventeen. 
We have uh, Jesus casting out demon. People are going, uh, give us a sign. But he, knowing their thoughts, said, every kingdom divided against itself, because they're going, uh, this guy casts out demons by the power of Satan, right? And he's going, mm, no, 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 no. Matthew 9, 4, Jesus knowing their thoughts. This is right after he heals. Why can't I? Can't highlight anymore, apparently. My app is just shutting down. It's like you've been live streaming too long. Shut me down. No. No, we're almost done. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? How many times does the text of Scripture have to tell you that Jesus knows what only God can? Or Jesus can do what only God can? Or Jesus is what only God is? Um... I'm looking for one more thing. Luke 7. Let's see if this is it. We have Jesus. Here's another you know, instance of this. A woman comes in to this meal that Jesus is having with a fellow with a Pharisee. He's in the house of a Pharisee. This woman just kind of barges on in, starts wiping his feet with her tears and her hair and, and rubbing ointment on them and essentially like showing like uh, appreciation for, for Jesus. And the Pharisee says to himself, if this man were, were a prophet, he would have known who and so, what sort of woman this is. And Jesus said, Simon, I, I want to tell you something. <laughs> and he said, go ahead, teacher. Just know that the Pharisee said this to himself quietly under his breath. It doesn't say, but Jesus does answer potentially a thought that he had in his own mind and didn't say out loud. Now, if he said it out loud, that's fine. You can have that. But there's too many scriptures that say that Jesus knew the thoughts, knew the hearts, read the mind of people. When first King says, no, only God can do that. Only God can do that. I, I'm trying to think of anywhere. The only other place I might say God allowed someone special information is Elisha the prophet he's able to somehow um like the there's an enemy king I think the king of Syria he's planning against Israel every time he plans and schemes the people of Israel are able to escape and the king of Syria is like what the heck how come every time I try and go get him they know my plans. And some guy goes, Elisha, he, he actually, he knows. God tells him. I think that's different because God telling Elisha is different than Jesus knowing on his own the thoughts and the hearts of man. The only, as only God can. So, you know, um, there's 30 more reasons which totals 61 alongside the first episode of Isaiah and the scriptures and the angel of God's presence and the word of God, I, I think we can confidently say that, yeah, the, the scriptures really do teach that Jesus is God in the flesh, yet he's distinct from the father and he's not the, he's not the father. Um, that's the theology we're given in the scriptures. 
what you do with that is on you, man. I'm just here to relay the information and do my best, and I've done that, and I'm late for the VC, so I'm gonna jump in. Come join us on Discord uh, for our time of prayer and fellowship. It's gonna be dope. And that's all I have for you guys today. The next episode, I will be addressing um, uh, common uh, objections. One of them being that Jesus is the firstborn, or Jesus is uh, the only begotten son, or Jesus is uh, these different ways the English will translate those Hebrew and Greek thoughts. And I, I want to talk about that. Okay, so we'll talk about it. Um, and I'll explain what it means that Jesus is the firstborn, the only begotten Son. Just a little uh, glimpse into what we're going to talk about. It just refers to rank and status in a family. So that's primarily what it's saying about Christ. Other than that, I'll see you guys on Discord. The link is in the YouTube description below. If you're on Instagram, uh, TikTok, Facebook, it's in my bio. And I'll see you guys later. Bye-bye.